Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, welcome, friends. I hope all is well in your world on another episode of History 21, the podcast. The summer just started and already it is flying by. I can't believe it. We've been busy, busy bees at the museum, painting walls, working on finishing the exhibit hall, saying goodbye to our collections manager, Erin, and welcoming our new interim manager, Cassandra, and looking ahead to all the summer events and even ghost tours in the fall. Man, I am stressing myself out, which is why I'm so excited to bring you this episode today. I've had this topic on my wish list since the very beginning of creating this podcast over a year ago, and it just kept getting pushed off and pushed off. I wanted to get it right. It has drama. It has a daring medical rescue of Daisy, a 10-year-old little girl, letters that reveal what Anoka was like in 1854, and tells the story about one of my favorite artifacts in the collection, and it's pretty creepy. <laughs> the episode begins with the report of a terrible accident on a farm in Ramsey, just a couple miles outside of Anoka. And it follows the story from there, bringing in descendants of all the major players, including Myrtle Johnston, the daughter of the injured girl, and Peter Jablonski, descendant of the doctor who came to the rescue. A couple of notes on this episode. It does contain descriptions of surgery and human bones, so if that's difficult for you. And a reminder that in the story, we alternate between calling Phoebe Guderian by her given name and her nickname, Daisy. But Phoebe, Daisy, they're the same little girl. I don't want you to get confused. I don't want to give too much away, but seriously, stay and hear the story and the connections surrounding the watch fob in our collection made from the piece of a little girl's skull. Dun, dun, dun. Anoki Union, October 29th, 1890. A terrible kick. Phoebe Daisy Guderian seriously injured Monday. Little Daisy Guderian, the nine-year-old daughter of C.S. Guderian of Ramsey. Vice President of the Anoka National Bank and Republican candidate for state senator, went out to the barn on the farm Monday morning to hitch up the old horse, which the children have been driving for years. For some unexplained reason, the animal kicked, striking the poor child directly on the left side of the face, near and above the eye, inflicting great injury. The little sufferer was carried into the family residence and doctors Gidding and Aldrich of the city summoned. Myrtle Johnson. I'm the granddaughter of Christopher Stanley Guderian, who lived in America for years. When I was a small child, my mother used to tell me about this surgery that she had had. She was 10 years old and was living on a farm about two and a half miles from Anoka. Uh, she was out uh, in the barn one day and a high-spirited buggy horse kicked her in the forehead. Uh, they had horses because her dad used to uh, go to his position at the Anoka Bank uh, 
horse and buggy. So the doctor was called and they put her on their kitchen table. Now she was 10 years old at this time, it was in 1890. Summoning the doctor to help wasn't as simple as picking up the phone and calling 911. The Guderian farm was located in present-day Ramsey, approximately two and a half miles north of Anoka on the way to Elk River. While the family lived relatively close to the city, it would still take time to go fetch the doctor and return with help. In our modern world, we don't have a concept of how long a trip on horseback takes. Thankfully, the Bunker Park stable could help answer a few questions about that one. A horse trots between five and eight miles per hour and a gal is between 10 and 17 miles per hour. And uh, thank you math teachers, the trip took whoever left to get help between 20 and 25 minutes. And then once in town, they still had to find the doctor, hope they're home, wait for them to gather their things, perhaps hitch their horse and make the return trip. So help probably arrived perhaps an hour after the family had sent for help. The doctor who came to the call was Dr. Aurora Giddings. Who was he? We called up a longtime friend of the Historical Society for a little help in getting to know more about this doctor. This call is now being recorded. Sounds like we're already being recorded. Should I just go ahead? Uh, yeah, if you want to. Anyway, here we go. Hello, I'm Peter Chablonski, and I'm here to read two letters which were written by my great-great-grandfather, Dr. Aurora W. Giddings. I first became aware of him through some of his possessions, which had been passed down from generation to generation. The bed and chest of drawers in my parents' bedroom were the ones he'd had shipped up the Mississippi on a flatboat when he settled in Anoka. And the buffalo skin blanket, which kept me warm on winter drives in our unheated Nash, was the same one which had kept him from freezing on those long trips to minister to his patients. Later on, I learned about what an amazing man he was. During his early years, he was paid primarily in foodstuffs, such as potatoes, and he continued practicing medicine until he was almost 75. Dr. Aurora W. Giddings, and no matter the research we did, we could not confirm what the W stood for moved to Anoka in 1854 and became the area's first doctor. The city wasn't officially a city, and Minnesota wasn't even a state yet. In one letter, Aurora wrote back to his siblings and described what his new home was and what it was like living in the Minnesota Territory. Peter lent his voice to his great-great-grandfather. Anoka, Minnesota Territory, November, 1854. Brothers and sisters, I have so much to write, I hardly know where to commence. I presume you are acquainted with our whereabouts. I am located on the Mississippi River, 25 miles above St. Paul, at the junction of the Malax Lake River with the Mississippi. The city is of only three months' growth and was laid out by a company from Maine. A group of men laid out $40,000, erecting saw and grist mills and planning for a machine lathe factory. Now we have two public houses, one larger and furnished as well as any I've seen. The other accommodates 15 boarders and two families of six each. The landlady is a half-breed. 
one boarding house, 16 dwelling houses, and one store, all in the short space of three months. There are about three families in each house. This is pioneering. Move the families onto the ground and build the house around them as quickly as lumber can be procured. For my own part, I am as pleasantly situated as I could wish. I am boarding at Mrs. Shaw's, very kind New Englanders. The old gent is a refined, inquisitive old Yankee. His son and wife, two men and one maidservant, compose the family. The house is made of logs hewn two stories high, with a dining room and kitchen in back, parlor in front. All the rooms except the kitchen are painted and carpeted. There's a new piano in the parlor. Indeed, the house is as richly furnished as any in your own town. But a very different state of things exists from what one might suppose. All are getting rich. People think nothing of doubling their property in five or six months. Everything is very high here, enough to frighten one at first. But I have become accustomed to the charges which are equal to those in any of our eastern cities. One dollar per day for board at the hotel. Horse, three dollars per week. <laughs> I have to keep old Bill there at present. Bose is boarding at a hotel six miles below. I am highly pleased with the prospect here. One was never told about the beauty of the scenery, the productiveness of the soil, and the salubrity of the climate. It has rained but once since we arrived. It was like an April shower, followed by warm sunshine. Indeed, strawberry plants are in bloom, but, of course, will not bear fruit. The atmosphere is so dry, we have scarcely any twilight, but, oh, such splendid mornings, like your sugar weather in spring, so bright and bracing. We are often without rain for months, yet never suffer from it. I arrived here to remain on the last day of October. On the 3rd of November, I rode 20 miles after sundown, a very cold night, a pretty good commencement. There is no physician within 19 miles below Anoka at St. Anthony, and none for 200 miles above, a large, clear field. It is estimated that there are a 1,000 people within 6 miles of here, period. And such a rush as can hardly be credited passes up river every day. There are pineries up river 100 miles from here. The logs are drove down to this place and St. Anthony. At the latter place are eight sawmills in full operation. I shall make a claim for myself and Peter as soon as I get time, which will ultimately enable us to get 160 acres for 10 shillings per acre. There is a fine, heavy growth of timber across the cliffs about four miles from here, with prairie on each side, which I have my eye on. More anon, a Giddings and lady. P.S. Tell my love to all. Answer soon. To Aurora in 1854, Anoka is a bustling place full of opportunities for the white settlers moving to the area. He sees the area as open and uninhabited without thinking about the native people they were displacing. The area is practically perfect to him in every way. The weather, the soil, the morning light. January in Minnesota is a different story weather-wise. Aurora wrote one of his siblings again a couple months later and shares that it isn't easy being a doctor in the Minnesota Territory.
Anoka, Minnesota Territory, January 1855. Brother Giddings, oh, you ask if there is room for you here. There is room enough, but I do not wish to have you come. For in that case, I should have no place to visit when I return, as I intend to do when ten years expires. Also, you ask, how do I stand the Minnesota winters? Well, I do know how to bundle up. Even so, the skin has just dropped off one ear, and the other was badly frozen on a journey of 67 miles to visit a patient from whom I have just returned at the rate of $10 per day. But Jerusalem, you can have no idea how cold it is here. I have ridden 30 miles per day facing the storm, mercury standing at 17 below zero. Oh, I wish you could see my rig, a, a very good cutter with a square box. The wagon seat just fits in, but it is no port in a storm. Some hay in the bottom and a sheepskin. I don't know what I should have done without that. Then I deposit myself with an Indian blanket over my head, buffalo shoes and overcoat, and all the underclothes that can be got on. Then another blanket and another buffalo fur. What do you think? John is quite well. My respects to all yours in haste, Aurora Giddings. What's it like reading the words of your ancestor like this? It's fascinating. I, I I just basically hear myself in him, so I try and put that in. Um, I, I I think that there's a long history in the chases and giddings that uh, continues to this day. He was so optimistic in that one letter where he was like, I'll return after 10 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. And, uh, and of course, the, the fact, reading some of the other stuff, that he retired and went to Florida and then had to come back because his patients wouldn't see any other doctors. You got so used to one medical provider. You mentioned the buffalo blanket that you yourself had kept warm with. My mother used to play, when she was little, she played with the buffalo boots and buffalo mittens until they just wore out and fell apart. But uh, the buffalo robe was still in the back seat of our car, as I think was a buffalo, um, what was the thing, a buffalo muff that you could put both hands in. Um, and he mentions it in the letter. Yes, yeah, he did this whole a, a wonderful description of bundling up there. I'm probably nothing left except his eyes and nose showing. Dr. Giddings was 60 years old when someone came riding into town to find help for little Daisy Gadarian. And thankfully, all those layers of buffalo weren't needed. We even checked with Minnesota's historic climate data listings. Uh, there was a high of 50 and a low of 31, with no precipitation that day. Dr. Giddings gathered his supplies and headed to the farm, where little Daisy lay waiting on the kitchen table. The newspaper described what happened next. Examination disclosed that her skull was fractured, and a piece of bone as large as a dollar was removed. The case is quite critical, but if inflammation can be prevented, she may recover. Her father was away from home at the time of the casualty, up in Isanti County, but H.E. McFarland started with a team to bring him home, arriving at 12 o'clock Monday night. Great sympathy is heard everywhere for the afflicted parents and the little sufferer. Did your mother suffer any ill effects afterward? No. Uh, she always had a little bit of an indentation in her forehead, and um, 
But if she were really warm uh, and her hair kind of curled back from her forehead, you could see the scar where the surgery had been performed. And some of my friends were asking me what type of anesthetic they used, and I was thinking ether, but a lady friend of mine who's a nurse thought it might have been chloroform in those days. Either one was used. Would it have been that early that we had ether in 1890? See, mother was born in 1880, and in 1890 she would have been 10 years mm -hmm. old. And he took the largest fragment of the bones from her forehead and had it uh, made into a watch fob. His initials are engraved on it, and then you can see the markings on the back of it of a child's skull. And they didn't put a plate in her forehead because they thought it would be too much pressure on her brain. So she had a spot in her forehead that, uh, that the bone didn't completely close. Like a little soft spot almost. Well, she was 10 years old, so, so I suppose did. it was more set than yeah. that. Okay. But um, the doctor thought that that she shouldn't be excited after this. So at the time they had a Catholic school in Anoka, and they suggested, even though they weren't Catholics, that uh, Phoebe uh, go to that school where the well, there would be less chance for excitement and uh, such. Consequently, my mother got an excellent education and learned to play the piano and a lot of things that she might not have had the advantage of in a public school. See, when I was a little girl, my mother used to tell me about this. And she said, I'm sure the doctor took the biggest piece of bone and, and wore it as a watch fob for many years. I went to see a man that I always called Ross Chase, and I think he's Roe Chase in this book. He was a grandson of this Dr. Giddings. And when I went to his house on Ferry Street here, and when I met Ross, he angled this in front of my eyes <laughs> and told me that he was always going to give that to one of Phoebe Guderian's children, of which there were six. <laughs> so. Uh, he, he showed it to me and told me he had one other person to whom he wanted to show it because it denoted his grandfather's skill. Mm -hmm. And he secured it by uh, being at the bedside of his grandfather when they were dividing his precious things. And the thing he wanted was this, which he felt was so characteristic of his grandfather's skill. So he had it, and he was dangling that, and telling me that he was going to give it to one of Daisy's children, and at that time he knew me, and he knew my brother. So I told him where I was teaching school, and went home and forgot about it, because I didn't think I'd ever get it. About three months later, it came through the mail. I got this in the late 40s. Dr. Giddings saved Phoebe's life by removing a piece of bone pressing on her brain in 1890. After the surgery, the piece became a decoration and eventually made its way back to Phoebe's daughter in 1940. But that's not where the story ends. 
Hi, uh, I'm Erin. I'm the archivist at the Anoka County Historical Society. What was your first reaction when you saw this piece in our collection? Oh boy. Uh, well, probably that actually <laughs> would, was just, oh no, why? Uh, but the story is so good. Yeah, the story is great. Uh, I guess when I first heard about it, just the description, we have a, you know, a pocket watch fob made of a human skull. I, I jumped to some really brutal conclusions. I was like, oh no, don't tell me. <laughs> but it ends up being a good story. Yeah, it's a great story. Describe it for us. Where do I even start? It's most like shield shaped. Uh, if, if you've ever seen, like, a little shield pin, not very big, uh, on the, I suppose, the front of it, in very curly cursive, is carved A-W-G for, um, I don't, I know his last name is Giddings. Aurora um, Giddings. Thank you. <laughs> uh, really, Aurora? Aurora. That's a great name. It is. Yeah. See, because the thing that was in my eye was like, it's got to be Andrew, right? No, Aurora's much better. And the little shield is maybe about the size of a... Uh, it's a bit larger than a thumbnail. Getting to be quarter-sized almost? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell because of the shape. It is about quarter-sized. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a teeny bit smaller. And it is attached to something. It is. It's attached to this uh, braided black leather bit that would be... Attached to the uh, pocket watch, uh, almost like a keychain. If you didn't know what it was, would you be able to clock it for what it is? When you see the back, it's pretty obvious, because the the back of it, um, there are all of these very uh, interesting dents and scratches, uh, which if you if you've ever like seen bones after they've been cleaned after a while. Uh, it's almost like these impacted dirt and oxidation marks uh, in the scratches, and it's fairly obvious that it's a piece of bone. You recently got this artifact out from the collection. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I got this artifact out and showed it to a group of Boy Scouts, uh, and they, they were thrilled and scandalized. Um, and that, that was very, very fun. And I told them about the story, and I, I think they, they didn't care too much about the story, but the Boy Scouts proceeded to immediately ask if we had any human organs in the collection, uh, or any other bones. Um, and, uh, to my knowledge, at least, I don't think we do. It's a very special case. Yes, it is. It definitely is. Phoebe's daughter donated the uh, pocket watch fob to us in 1994. So it's been here longer than I've been alive. <laughs> By a year. <laughs> and now everyone feels old. <laughs> Did she talk about it? That it was oh, done? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She just, she thought it was wonderful that he had been able to do what he did. There were quite a few little fragments that he picked out of there. And then he just took the biggest one and had it fixed for a watch for Well, does she remember having to stay still or anything? Well, well yeah, afterwards? she remembered having to go to the private school. And no, I would think that mother would have been quite an active person. And I imagine that that kind of 
cramper style <laughs> to, to have to be quiet all the time. Well, what I was thinking of, I would think of immediately after that surgery, there might be some swelling or the danger of you know, some something. She never, she never talked of, uh, of having any inconvenience. Really? He must have done a good job. And really, the scar was not that bad. Um, kind of came through the hole there a little, and then up into her hairline. And unless she, well, yeah, my mother was a crier. You know, she'd cry when she was happy, and she'd cry when she was sad. And if she cried, <laughs> the scar showed more. Phoebe died in 1965 at the age of 84. The only evidence of her fantastic ordeal, a blurb in the newspaper, a scar on her forehead, and a unique pocket watch decoration. Thankfully, we have these pieces of story, and it's now a part of Anoka County history. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute. Hello, my name is Diana Nurberg, a librarian for Anoka County Libraries, and I'm here to suggest some additional reading if you were enthralled by the latest History 21 episode. Check out these titles from your local library. Dr. Mutter's Marvels, a true tale of intrigue and innovation at the dawn of modern medicine by Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. Dr. Mutter was a doctor beyond his time, innovative, empathetic, and original, he helped revolutionize the field of medicine. Along the way, the doctor collected medical oddities, which are now housed in the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Next, we have The Human Body, the story of how we protect, repair, and make ourselves stronger by H.P. Newquist. This juvenile nonfiction book gives historical context to medical advances made throughout the ages, from devices pertaining to our bodies, like glass eyes or eyeglasses, to medical tools and treatments. Photos and artistic renderings provide visual appeal for young readers fascinated by medical sciences. Next, we have The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth and Other Curiosities from the History of Medicine by Thomas Morris. This is an entertaining and even humorous collection of bizarre medical anecdotes. From tales of strange ailments to the antiquated and unusual methods of treatment, these stories are sure to thrill readers. Next, we have A Country Doctor's Casebook, Tales from the North Woods by Roger McDonald. Keeping things local, this book is a compilation of stories from a doctor working in northern Minnesota post-World War II. The stories capture the struggles of rural life, the challenges facing the medical field at the time, and the relationships forged. We hope you find these resources entertaining and informative. Until next time, happy learning! Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Thank you so much to Myrtle for donating the piece to our collection and talking about her mother, and Peter for calling in to talk about his family's history connected to this really weird piece. It's definitely one of the more sensational items in our collection. Not everybody can say that they have a watch fob made from a piece of a little girl's skull. Uh, for years, the shorthand at the museum, we just called it the Giddings watch fob. The Giddings watch fob. He carried it. It has his initials on it. But by rights, should it be the 
Guderian watch fob? I mean, she grew it. It's her piece of skull. Right? Or should they share ownership in the shorthand? It's the Guderian Giddings watch fob. The G squared. Just that creepy thing. It's hard when uh, you try to describe something uh, that has such a complex story to it in just a couple of words. But we will remember Daisy, and uh, I'm really glad that she grew up and had an amazing life and had her daughter and granddaughter and story living on. Uh, the artifact is also an example of how interconnected pieces in the collection can be. We have the newspaper where Daisy's accident was reported, the letters that her doctor wrote, and the watch fob itself, all donated by different people at different times, but they're connected and relate to each other to tell a different piece of the story. When we're looking to add things to the collection, those are things to think about. Our, our first question when people come in is, is it from Anoka County? But our second question is, what's the story? Is it just an old thing? Or does it tell us something about the people and place that we live? Thanks for coming along on this journey of learning about the Guderian Giddings watch fob. And we'll see you next time. I promise we will have no more episodes about human bones. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.